got in Cape Town, Rob Parkin. In Johannesburg, we've got Zulufelu Pelu and at the controls, Phineas and Tobas. So thanks, guys, for what you are about to do. And we have you. Don't forget, if you'd like to join in, you're so welcome. The number is 0892102010. But let me give you a breakdown of what we've got in the lineup. Well, we always start, as you know, with a hero slot. And in that hero slot for today, well, it's going to take the form of a tribute, a tribute to the late writer, Nobel Literature Prize winner, Doris Lessing, who died last week, aged 94. Said to be one of the most important writers of the late 20th century, whatever important means. But we'll be talking to writer, trainer, Colleen Crawford-Cousins for her overview and and for her personal experience of this rather extraordinary uh, and formidable woman's life and writing. So looking forward to that one. And I'm inviting you to give us a call on that one, because if you're a Lessing fan, maybe you're not a Lessing fan, maybe you've read some of her books or have personal experience in any way, do give us a call. The number right now, let me tell you, is 0892102010. here in the studio. Then in our text slot, around about 22-2, as it were, the first nibble of poetry, with a young poet-performer, he's an emerging poet called Kyle Allen, and he set some of his words to music. Book two, that's after the news at two o'clock, John Galbraith, John H. Galbraith, in fact, is a conservationist and a cryogenic engineer based in Botswana, and he's tried his hand at writing in a book called The Last Rhino, which is set in Zambia in the late 70s. Rhino poaching clearly by no means a new phenomenon, so we'll hear what his take is on that. Bookshelf, and our reader today, is in fact a professional nurse. He's Zitle Mantashi. We're going to find out what's been on his bedside table, and don't forget your moment. If you want to tell us what you're reading, you're welcome. Books at safm.co.za is our email address. Then story. Um, As you know, sometimes we have a documentary, sometimes we have a story. But on this particular occasion, it's going to be our second foray into poetry as we hear the story of Kubus Molman, winner of the 2013 Sol Plaiki European Union Award. Uh, And it's Daily Duty, the poem for which he won that award. But he's got a huge amount of poems and plays to his name. We're going to be sharing his journey through the time passages of his very own words. Looking forward to that. After three, after the news at three, Roger Webster is going to be bringing us not, in fact, a story of his own today, but another collector of stories. He's opted to do an interview himself. He's going to be chatting to Rose Willis, who, in fact, has made it her life's work to unearth some of South Africa's little-known tales and treasures. So it'll be interesting to have two storytellers, collectors of stories, on the show at the same time. And in Backpage, a children's book, probably something that we don't do often enough, children's books, because we all talk so much about how important uh, reading is, and if you don't inculcate the idea of reading early, it's never going to happen later on. Well, it becomes more difficult later on. So we're going to be talking to South African-born author of children's books, in fact, many different types of books, but in this case, particularly children's books, she's Diane Hoffmeyer. And she was in the country recently to promote her very latest book, which is called The Name of the Tree is Bojabi. Beautifully illustrated, might I say, by uh, Pete Krobler, who's a bit of a national treasure in his own right. So we'll find out a little bit more about that. And a nice one for Christmas if you're thinking about what to uh, get for the kids for around Christmas and holiday times. And close the Sunday play. And the play today is called Haita the Shepherd. And that's from the series In the Midst of Life by Ambrose Bierce. So that's what we got lined up. Just a quick footnote. 
Um, I must just remind you once again, I'm always especially interested to know what you are reading and why you're reading it, why you're enjoying it, or why you're hating it, because we do get some fairly vociferous opinions on different books. And I just want to share this with you. I know that we've spoken about it before on the show, but the Good Book Appreciation Society Facebook page, it's a, it's a secret group, but it's highly recommended if you should get yourself an entree, because... Uh, in it, people share their book sound bites and, and they, what they're reading now, what they'd like to read, their feelings, and it's, it's really, really interesting. Let me give you a little bit of a, a nibble into that one. We've got Megan Clawson, who, or Clausen, who gave a literary confession to say that she'd never read Jane Eyre. Diane Hubbard says, uh, for her, A Tale for the Time Being by Rose Ozerki is the best book that she's read this month. And Zukisa Wana is currently engrossed in Jonathan Fenby's Alliance, which is the inside story of the Second World War. Karen Shimke asks, what has been your favourite read of 2013? I might well ask the same question. And Edith, uh, Edith Baldbring says, the trouble with reading Marguerite Poland is that the tears pool in the spot above your ears if you're sitting upright in a plane. And Johnny Liebenberg says, though, no Violet Bulawayos, we need new names, was absolutely dreadful. So there you go, each and every one to their own taste. And uh, they've also given a guide uh, just now on a guide to tw- 12 titles for Christmas gifts. And I think perhaps if there's a little bit of time later on, I might read you uh, what those titles are. So stick around and listen carefully. Um, and don't forget, if you'd like to let me, let me personally know what you're reading, what you're loving or hating, you're welcome. The email address is books at safm.co.za, books at safm.co.za. So here we are talking books, books and more books and words and poems and all sorts of things on SAFM literature. And first up on the show today, in our hero slot, I think we could safely call her a literary heroine who's been called one of the most important writers of the late 20th century. She's Nobel Literature Prize winner Doris Lessing, who died last week aged 94, leaving uh, what can only describe as a massive literary legacy. Just so that you know, FYI, if you don't know much about her, she was born in 1919 in Persia, moving with her parents to Zimbabwe, or then Rhodesia, when she was just five years old. Doris married and divorced twice. She had three children, and in 1949, with just a couple of pounds in her pocket, her youngest son. And if I can just uh, quote a little bit that I read a bit of an obit in The Independent, it says, Writing was central to her life for almost eight decades, and of herself, she said, she was an over-emotional person, born with skins too few. Well, hamburgerle, au revoir, totsins, and all those things to Doris Lessing. Well, to talk a little bit more about her and her own experience of Lessing, the woman and her writing, we have on the line Colleen Crawford-Cousins. Colleen herself is a writer, she's a trainer, facilitator. But as I said, really like you to, to invite you to join us, if you like. Maybe you've read any of her book, some of her books or have a personal experience. Join in, 0892 9210-2010. As Colleen herself says, the more the merrier. But uh, we've got her on the line, described as one of the most important writers of the late 20th century, whatever important means. And I, I will confess that I have just started reading Doris Lessing's volume one of her autobiographical uh, duo. It's called Under My Skin, and it's a very old second-hand, rather fox version, which seems utterly appropriate. And what a fascinating read already. Colleen, hi. Hi, Nancy. How are you? I'm excellent, and that's, that's my confession that I've just started <laughs> reading volume one of her autobiography. And my goodness me, she writes 
as I imagine she would have spoken. It's, it's almost like it's a spoken word, isn't it? Yes, I mean, look, she's an extraordinary writer, and it's very hard to say much. The problem is she did write for 60 years. Mm. And um, when I heard you started The Grass of Singing, I wanted to say, stop, Nancy. Okay. <laughs> Go and start with The Golden Notebook. Okay. Um, but, I mean, please, read it all. It's mm. all absolutely mm. marvellous and wonderful, but it's got lots of different voices and lots of different tones. Now, listen, she wrote The Grass of Singing when she was 30 or something. Mm. Um, she's very young. An awful lot of things happened um, between then and her sort of final work, I mean, which was called Alfred and Emily, and there's a completely different book in tone, and yet it's the same Doris. And there she writes about her, her mother and father, both their real life and the life she imagined they would have had had they not been the First World War and they hadn't got married. I think you'd love that too. You know, we're hearing a little sort of beep uh, on the phone. I'm not sure if there's a phone. I wonder if we should call you back, Colleen. Um, it's, or it's, it now suddenly seems to have stopped, doesn't okay. it? Yeah, no, yeah. Not anything. No, 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 all good, all good. Yes. And that was her sort of final work. And I mean, I, I, the tones are so different and the voices mm. are so different. But I think what Doris Lessing did was she wrote her way through life. She was a great mm. believer in the total value of experience and experience thought about and reflected on. And I think writing was her tool of doing that. So she'd write herself through crises, like getting older, losing love. Um, a lot of those, those novels, I think, are her wrestling with what is um, a you know, deeply female and deeply human experience. You know, she always rejected being called a feminist um, in a sort of narrow way. Of course, there are many feminisms, but she is someone that you read as a woman and you feel enormously encouraged by. She didn't write about it. She wrote from the position of being a strong, conscious female voice who was going to consider how life should be lived and could be lived in the 20th century, in the beginnings of the 21st, where she sort of got too old to write properly, I think. I love the way you you say that she she wrote her way through life, you know, like she sort of waded through it. And indeed, she certainly had, excuse the expression, one hell of a life to write her way through. Absolutely amazing life, yeah. You know, her, I mean, just her early beginnings, you know, just those those early years in Tehran were extraordinary. Did she, um, did she keep journals? Because, I mean, I'm just reading. I, I haven't started The, the Grass is Singing, but on your advice, I now won't. I'm going to finish her biography or her autobiography first. But uh, did she keep journals? I think she did. I think mm. she did. And I think, uh, I think she kept dream journals for, you know, she was in therapy for periods of her life. She was extremely interested in dreams. If you read some of those novels, a lot of them are organized around dreams or dream sequences, particularly ones that she said were um, disguised autobiographies, actually. I'm trying to think of what it was called. Um, Memoirs of a Survivor. Oh, yes. Where she's using the dream form and dream and visions going through the war. Oh, look, I mean, these books are terrific. Nancy, I cannot believe you haven't read them, but you've got such a wonderful treat ahead of you, really. Well, have. yes, I feel I've been outed, but there's so much to read. Sometimes <laughs> I walk into, sometimes I walk into bookshops and I sort of go into wheel wobble, and I think <laughs> there's so much and so much to read in so little time. Um, she wasn't Jungian, was she? I mean, she went, well, she would, she, no, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I mean, look, this is, this is someone who lived a huge, rich life who engaged with all the kind of uh, intellectualisms of the day, you know. She knew Ronnie Lang. This is taking us all back a long, long way, when everybody in London was thinking about alternative approaches to psychology. She's certainly interested in Freud and in Jung and um, so on. This is before her, her Sufi days, you know. She became very interested in the works of Idris Shah, which also, by the way, Nancy, I mean, I don't understand, but they're terrific, especially mm. the Mullah Nasruddin series. You've got to read them. Mm. 
But mm. um, I think she, she, she was a bright, lively mind, tremendously engaged with the zeitgeist of her time. So she would have read everybody, thought about everybody. Yes. Just on the, to- on the topic of psychology, I'm just trying to find the bit here where she talks about her own childhood, which was deeply unhappy. Um, in fact, here it is. The fact was my early childhood made me one of the walking wounded for years, a dramatic remark and pretty distasteful, really, but used with an exact intention, although it makes me easy victim to the current obsessionists who see evidences of abuse everywhere. And she, then she talks at, long, at length about how many people in her circle of friends, who, she says, um, uh, all my life I have understood, felt at home with, sometimes lived with people who had bad childhoods. I nearly mm. wrote conventionally bad childhoods. And it seems that around about that time, and this book came out in 1995, people were emerging with their bad childhoods. Yeah. Uh, just how yeah. bad was her childhood? I think it was a mixed childhood. Mm. And if you look at Alfred and Emily, um, yeah, I, I think, look, she wrote all her life based on the enormous strength and the beauty and the extraordinary child part of her childhood, which was living essentially in a mud hut in Bankers on a, on a failing um, sort of maize farm, um, you know, with her mom and dad and little brother. And there were, I think the problem was her mother was a tremendously talented and terribly frustrated woman who was stuck in a mud hut with a guy with one leg who was, whose farm was failing. I mean, that, that was no joke to be, to be trapped in Rhodesia and yet who spent an enormous amount of time and energy teaching the children at home, homeschooled and ever little, and spending every last penny she could on buying books from London. These books would come in cartons. She's written about this a lot, Alfred and Emily. So I think it was both the difficulty was with her mother, mm. which, is about, which I do not underestimate. That's a huge, huge, huge difficulty, which will completely form your life. And, you know, that's it. Yes, one but of it wasn't people. just that. Mm. It, that. That's not all it was. I think it has had enormous richness. I think it was, she, she wrote about the beauty and the strength and the amazingness of the place that she grew up in all her life. That, that, it never left her, you know, that sense of how wonderful um, and, yes. Rhodesia was and, at that point. And, and even before Rhodesia, she seems to have had an extraordinary, uh, an extraordinary recall because she talks about yeah. the Tehran nursery when she was, you know, she was less than five. She says the Tehran nursery was English, Edwardian, and could have been in London. An enormous room, square high, filled with a lumber, uh, filled like a lumber room with heavy furniture. Yeah. In the walls burns a fierce and exuberant fire, and she goes on and on and on. Um, the air in that room is all smells, scorch of newly ironed cloth, Vaseline, Elliman's embrocation, cod liver oil, almond oil, camphorated oil, pear soap, the nostril expanding tang from the copper jug and basin on the washstand. And she says, heavy curtains hold dust behind the muslin curtains with their smell of soap. The curtains have blue and pink bow peeps and lambs, but otherwise everything, but everything, is white, a suffocation of smelly whiteness. <laughs> extraordinary. And, Isn't that I mean, extraordinary she was, piece? It's from she, the memory of a yes. very small child. Incredible. But, now, Nancy, I now direct you to The Four-Gated City, which is the very first um, novel I'm, I met of Doris Lessing's across to be in 1970 or something. And there is a picture of her Martha Quest. So this is the final of her Martha Quest novels. That, uh, and which would start with the eponymous novel Martha Quest. But mm. In this one, she depicts Martha as spending months in her bedroom, training herself to remember. She's a, then a sort of woman in her 30s or early 40s. Her mother's about to come and visit her from Rhodesia. This is in the novels. It's a novelistic mother. But, um, and Martha collapses. And what she does is she spends weeks and months training herself to remember every tiny detail. Um, because what we do, of course, is we, we repress memory. It's too full of pain. 
And this kind of thing that she wrote then, that is a retrieved memory. I mean, it's so we believe her because it's so obviously powerful. So obviously the child's absolutely vivid memory. You can't make this stuff up. Mm-hmm. This is a retrieved memory. And that was the enormous power of, of, of Doris Lessing as a writer. I mean, in this very business person-like prose, you know, in direct, clear, searing. I mean, she took you by the throat. She will take you by the throat, I'm afraid to say, mm-hmm. and sit you down and say, listen, I mean, this, that, I'm so glad you read that piece because it's an extraordinary moment of a small child remembering a hideous infancy with a mother who was not attuned to her, was unkind to her, but who also was limited by the the kind of motherhood rituals of the day. If you look at that little piece you've read, you know, the, the terrible stuffing, uh, stuffed upness of it, the yes. whiteness, the hideous smells. This was a, a woman who was a nurse and who loved Doris's little brother, sadly, much more than she loved Doris. She loved yes, the boy. That seems to have been a huge issue yeah. that everybody doted on, on her little brother yeah. and, you know, quite quite yes. blatantly yes. didn't feel a whole lot of affection for her at all. So well, she, she, she was a difficult, sparky little girl. Who was difficult for your mum, you know. I mean, often the first, maybe the first child is a girl, a girl who wasn't, you know, look, this is the land of psychology, you can go on all afternoon, but, uh, she spent her life, she spent, look, there's many themes in lots of her novels, there's lots of people who have, who have difficult relations with their mothers, and who have adored younger brothers, they often turn out to be monsters, by the way. Mm. <laughs> Think of love again. You haven't read that either. What a treat, Nancy. Uh, well, I'm looking at the, um, by the same author, a whole page full of different titles, thinking, gee whiz, you could spend your whole life reading Look, she, read, she wrote about 50 novels or something. Mm. I mean, look, they're all, not all the same, actually, but that's how I want you to start with the golden. Well, we, uh, just before we leave psychology of Doris Lessing, yeah. which, as you say, could keep us very busy for a very long time, and I, have, I feel very, very ill-equipped to be talking about no, no. this, but yeah. uh, from what little I've heard, she was also a difficult, spiky woman. In fact, I remember reading somewhere that she said she couldn't be doing with all these interviews because she was supposed to be writing. And why would anybody, you know, bother her taking up her writing time by doing interviews? Well, I think well, you she... know, I, I'll tell you what, the very first time I met Doris Lessing, look, I, knew her, I hardly knew her at all, but I had wonderful meetings with her. Each one of them a lesson in life, let's put it that way. And my um, then-husband and I were in London, very, 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 very young people, you know, very young, 21, 22 going on. And we decided to go and we were great admirers of Doris and we decided to go and knock at the door of her London flat and we did that and she came to the door and she folded her arms and said how dare you she said I'm writing can't you see I'm writing how can you do this we went away very humbled you know um, she was actually quite right yes <laughs> but see that wasn't difficult that was absolutely straight and clear and then sort of many years later we were in, living in, in Harare actually and I had the marvellous I was a Doris fan you know this marvellous and magical moment of the phone ringing in our um, lounge in Avondale West, and I picked it up, and a woman said, this is Doris Lessing. <laughs> Could I speak to Ben Cousins, please? This is my then husband. And it was indeed Doris Lessing, and she'd been put on to us from his and Yon through um, mutual friends who were running a book project, Kathy Bond Stewart and Talent and Yachty and so on. And clearly, probably starting somewhere with Judith Todd or someone like that. But anyway, she'd been told to talk to Ben about land reform. And she ended up taking us both out to lunch. The most delightful person you couldn't imagine. But I want to tell you, no, not Spiky, clear. Hmm. And she was enormously encouraging to a young woman. I felt enormously um, liked, appreciated and encouraged. 
about here? Did you remind her of the day that you knocked on her door and she sent you away? <laughs> or did you let that go? I don't know if that's right then. Actually, I should have, but I didn't. And then she was in. She, she came back to Zimbabwe a few times. She was writing her her books, Africa, her book, African Laughter. You know. And I was lucky enough to be invited out to her lunch somewhere. She was also she was fun. She was marvellous fun. She was intelligent. And basically she was very interested in other people. She got Ben and I to talk endlessly onwards, you know, while she listened closely. Tell me all. What did she say? Tell me everything, but tell me quickly. That was Doris. Mm. Mm. But I think the people who came up against her would find her difficult. But then they do, don't they? All of us. Well, very often with great talent comes quite a difficult personality uh, you know whether she was difficult or whether she was just Doris I mean you know. I don't think she's difficult I think yeah. she's very hard to push around you know yeah. I yeah. think she was she inhabited but a powerful woman and that's a difficult persona for lots of people Perhaps one might... you can't go around calling Rhodesia a nasty little uh, police state which she did without annoying an awful lot of locals you know yes when you say she was encouraging, was she encouraging to you as, a, as an individual or was she encouraging to you as a writer because you are... No, we didn't talk about... I mean, no, she was encouraging mm. as an individual. But, you mm. know, Margaret Atwood very recently wrote a lovely little piece about her in The Guardian, have a look, um, where she talks about um, meeting Doris at various writers' things and as a writer, saying no one could have been more encouraging to me and to other um, women. Yeah. I think she was, yeah, I mean, you either liked her or you didn't, you know. But I think she she didn't suffer fools gladly, and she had tremendously kind of, um, you know, she had strong ideas. She wasn't going to sort of back off of anything. And it, it seems also that she was not predictable, because to have been um, <laughs> okay. as prolific as she has, I don't know in the end how many books that she wrote. But 50, either, over 50. Over 50, 50 books. Know, at least 50. I mean, I haven't counted them, but at least 50. It know, seems lots. that she was not, you know, it wouldn't be uh, like, um, oh, no names, no petrol here, but for instance, and I love her to bits with Maeve Finchie, where you, you could reliably knew <laughs> that you were going to get the most wonderful piece of Maeve Finchie-esque. Um, but with Doris Blessing, it seems like you never quite knew what you were going to get. And in fact, you would get something that would alarm and annoy you. I remember when the good terrorists came out and all my left friends were absolutely furious, you know. How can she be so down on this? And, you know, she's totally, she's become totally right-wing, so on. Now, of course, it seems an entirely prescient novel. And it's an extraordinary psychological study of who might get drawn into um, doing things they might very deeply regret later. But uh, I mean, I don't know who might be used by unscrupulous people, mm. the kind of personality types that are easily pressed into all kinds of... I mean, I think she was talking about the IRA in London, actually. Yeah. So, I mean, again, amazing. She was very prescient. She Suddenly she shot into science fiction. And yes. Everyone said, how dare you? Science fiction is not a respectable genre. Real writers don't... I mean, why do you think she only won the Nobel at the age of 80-something, yeah. you know? Particularly that, for a woman of her... Or a writer of her calibre and contribution... Well, they might have found her a bit spiky. Didn't she turn down a, the Dame of the British Order because she didn't like the name Dame and she just thought it was a little bit unnecessary? <laughs> she, was, she was not to be messed with. Not to be messed with. Um, Colleen, we're talking, let me remind listeners who are, have no idea who Doris Lessing is that we're talking to Colleen Crawford Cousins about the unbelievable Doris Lessing who wrote over 50 books of all, all manner of different genres and the fact that she wrote a two-volume uh, her own autobiography within two volumes that in itself speaks volumes but uh, Colleen can you give us a sort of a dummy's guide to Doris Lessing I mean you're telling me what I should and shouldn't read because there are you know she wrote in, she wrote in different um, 
you know, there were the novels, there were the short stories, there were the the, the sequences, there's the Canopus in Argos series. That, that, the, that is worth a read, people. Can you just explain to me what Canopus in Argos archive oh, series means? It's tremendously challenging. Okay, it was written, I've got it in front of me here. It was written in 1979. The first one was called Shikasta, Ray Colonized Planet 5, Canopus and Argos archives. So it's purporting to be um, um, the story of the interaction between um, a beautiful planet, Rohanda, Earth, which gets hit by a meteor, probably happened to us actually, and became known as Shikasta, the broken one. And there's Canopus, which are the sort of good guys somewhere. I can't remember the other lot. Um, um, there's another planet who also involved in, um, politically really, with this uh, planet Shikasta. So that's the sort of big picture. But really, I would say that partly what it is, it's looking at the three, some of the themes that emerge from the three old religions of the, of the Middle East, you know, that's so much with us today, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. They're all, they're all religions of the book. They've all got particular notions and ideas, but the prophets and the Messiah and right living and right thinking and the end of days and so on. And this book plays with some of those ideas and then gives us um, a look through, this is the first novel, I mean, it all goes, I can't go on to the rest of the whole afternoon, but first off, look through the eyes of a, a young girl who's starting to realize that her brother George is um, special. He's special. We, we know actually he's from Canopus, he's come to Earth many times, and he's basically a prophet. But the book is, the novel's really about her finding out and starting to remember the time, the real, when she started to realize that he was special, that the parents were treating him specially, that there were weird teachers who were appearing out of absolutely nowhere to teach him. And then it goes on to look at the fate of the damaged planet, Chicasta, and what is necessary or what is needed. And I mean, rather clumsily, actually, you know, Isha uh, hated this. Anyway, rather clumsily, she came up with this idea of the spirit of we feeling, which is what was missing from the damaged planet once it had been hit so hard by the asteroid or whatever it was, you know. But it's somehow completely riveting. Mm. <laughs> they'll sound mad. It probably does. It's but then that, yes. there were sort of four more books. They were all completely different. Two two of the others, the marriage of the marriage well, what are they called? Marriages of the representatives between zones uh, three, four and five. And another one, which is completely, I mean, I read this again a few weeks, few years ago, and I mean, it freaked me out as much as it had the first time, a 1982 book called The Making of the Representative for Planet 8, which is really something. But the, both of these two novels were actually made into operas. Um, she worked with the, with Philip Glass yes. to make, which I'd absolutely love to hear. I don't know if they were recorded or what, but they were, you know, these, they were made into operas. How amazing. You know, just listening to you giving us a, the synopsis of the Canopus in Argos series, and I'm thinking, Phew, that might not necessarily be the place to start. <laughs> how, how accessible is her reading? Interesting that she says that she was, one of the things that marked her was literature, particularly Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, who were very much about people and all the sort of the goings-on. Was she... Would you say that throughout her writing, it's easy to read? You're not going to take one look at it and think, oh, no, this is heavy, can't cope. 
Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I've never found that. But it's, it's look, she, she writes in such a different form. So you should write these huge, magnificent, sprawling, wonderful books, like the huge Golden Notebook or The Four Gated City, but then something small and tight and terrifying, like The Fifth Child, absolutely accessible. But you've got to deal with it. You've got to cope with what she's writing about, you know. Or her, her most recent, her, her, you know, I don't know. Look, Doris makes you think and she makes you feel. I think she's incredibly accessible. This was a girl who left school when she was 14. She had no pretension to mad writing of any sort. But uh, was she a great, great, great literary, in a way, both realist and um, fantasist? Mm. Yes. Look, she's hard. you know what's so hard to do justice to? I mean, I, I, you know, Nancy, really, I'm so pleased to be here because she's meant a lot to me in my life and to the life of many, many, many other people, mm. other women that I know. But how to sum it up without making her small? She's bigger than that, you know. Yeah. I, I just want to encourage people to give her a go. Well, uh, it feels to me like that it's probably worth reading her autobiographies because by then you can understand who she is and where she's coming from to see what, what it is. And interesting that I read in, in another obituary that uh, one of her reasons for writing her own autobiographies was because no fewer than five Americans had al- already started on biographies. And she thought, well, let me at least get the facts right in my own way. Yeah, but then, you know, she stopped at a certain point because she didn't want to involve other family members and so on. There's things you can't write, man, you know. It shouldn't be written about, I don't think, until everyone's dead. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I think that was all very difficult. And I think there were hostile biographies written, actually. And I, I read one of them by someone called Carol Klein. I read bits of it, but it left me with a lasting horror, you know. Imagine mm. if a hostile biographer gets hold of you. You know what I mean? Yes. yes, yes. <laughs> it's terrifying. I, I, I mean, look, who, who lives? She has not uh, done so many things. It feels that like can be she... interpreted as both hideous or okay. Yes, it feels like she probably wouldn't much have minded. Um, I, I want to say perhaps wouldn't have cared, but maybe even she would care. I think everyone would care yeah. in the hands of the hostile biographer, yeah. you know. But, uh, you know, what one has an inner hostile biographer, but just imagine if this woman's given a budget in years to track down all the people who disliked you. Yes. And write hideous, you know, things about you, yeah. some of which will be basically true. Well, it's a wonderful thing that she received the, the Nobel Pr- uh, Prize for Literature because it seems that, you know, at last, finally she was recognized in a, in, in, a, in a global way. And I suppose that brings me to the last point, well, hardly the last point, but the last point for the moment. Yes. Her relevance today. A lot of people will have know all about Doris Lessing. A lot of people will have absolutely no idea who she is and whether, whether or not she's sort of relevant yeah, hard one to answer if you've actually, in a sense, grown with her or grown up on her hair. It's hard to say. I mean, I think, I think as, as, as a novelist of the zeitgeist, she's of enormous interest at any point. As someone who stands for a deeply integrated um, feminine, I'm not going to say feminist, feminine mm-hmm. viewpoint, she's very interesting, actually. But read a, a, a short, her recent short story collection, The Grandmothers, which is both chilling and interesting. And then say, is she relevant? I think she is. But, yeah. I mean, I don't know. You know, I was trying to think, you know, my, my kids' generation read her, or still have read her, often with my encouragement. But, I don't know. Do we want young people to climb on board? Where would they start? Would it be the fifth child? Would it be something very accessible? Would it be the grass is singing? You know, she said herself about that simple first novel that no one would have read it or been interested had... Um, 
proud and beloved country, not been yeah. published a few months before. Just if we if we can, just uh, two questions. I want to know what effect, if any, her she and her writing have had on your own writing. But <laughs> if I could just ask you about the grasses singing, because it was published in 1950 with outstanding yeah. success in the U.S. and in the years U.K. Ago. Is Sixty it years ago. But just give us a synopsis of the story. Well, it's about a. It's about a. It's um. It's about a, 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 a white farmer, a woman in Rhodesia, and who basically is murdered by her black manservant. And this came out of something, when I read about this, this came out of something, the sort of gossip on the veranda for Doris and her mother, how, you know, that she heard that, um, can you believe it, she lets this man do up the back of her dress and brush her hair. Can you believe that a white woman would actually do that? And then I wonder why he killed her, you know, etc. She remembers thinking to herself, I know exactly what happened there. And she, she went off and she wrote this uh, searing little novel, actually, which was a terrible look at um, Rhodesia, in mm-hmm. fact, what was going on. This, this terribly sad woman going quietly mad on some sort of chicken farm with this man she was essentially abusing. And, yeah, look, I'm interested. Apparently, it was a, a small part of a much larger novel. And then she, um, she always had a very cold, critical eye, old Doris. She tore away two-thirds of the book, and what was left revealed was what is now called grass singing. And she had a huge success with it, luckily. It yeah. sort of launched her. It, yeah, well, absolutely. It was say it catapulted her into the public eye That's as a writer. There. I don't know. Is it still relevant? Maybe it is. Oh, I don't know what relevant oh, I don't know what's relevant. It's a bit like important. What's important and what's relevant? We're not going to answer those questions. But I would like to press you on: Has she, as herself and her writing, had any uh, made any impression or had any relevance to your own writing? Look, I think I think Doris, for any any female writer, basically says, or to anyone, any woman and man, actually, I'm not going to be sort of particular about. She says, have the courage of your convictions. Don't be bullied. What do you really think about this? What, what is your experience of this? I mean, she's, she's a great writer of experience. She says, have the courage to stand firm. It doesn't matter. What needs to be said now? What is better named now? So she's a very encouraging thought. Well, that's tell you my internal thought. Say the hard thing. Say the, say the hard thing. Say what you mean and mean mm. what you say. Mm. Colleen, we've only touched, uh, touched a little on Doris Lessing, but how absolutely interesting. And thank you so much for your time and for your, uh, your commitment to Doris. And I should certainly work my way through the autobiographies. And that's just the beginning. Thank you. Great pleasure, Take Nancy. Care. And, yeah, it's a tribute to Doris, which meant a lot to me. Thanks for thank letting you. me thank speak you about very it. Much. Okay. Colleen Crawford Cousins, a writer, trainer, facilitator, giving us her tribute to Doris Lessing. I can't think of a better person, really, to have spoken because clearly a very, very dedicated Doris fan.